There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plushcare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hi there, and welcome to today's um, Explaining History podcast. And today I'm going to be looking principally at the 1905 uh, revolution in Russia. Um, I, I think sometimes it's unhelpful to look at the year of 1905 alone because really we, we're looking at an escalation in revolutionary activity um, that begins perhaps in 1900 and ends or, or briefly um, suspends itself uh, in about 1908. So 1905 is just a part of a kind of a, a bigger story of unrest. Um, and so it's important to start asking some very fundamental questions about what was going deeply wrong in Russia um, after the turn of the century. Um, well, everything really since the coronation of Nicholas II um, uh, in uh, 1894 had begun to go um, deeply wrong. Um, obviously, as I've mentioned in previous podcasts, um, his coronation is met with um, a, a, a crowd-controlled disaster which kills thousands of loyal onlookers and wishes. And it, it doesn't really bode very well for the rest of the, the Tsar's reign. But there do appear from about 1902 almost to be several very restless years. There are nationalist um, uprisings in Finland and in Armenia... Um, the um, great um, economic boom of Alexander III's reign has very much died off by now. Alexander III um, had presided over what was known in Russia as the Great Spurt, um, a, a period of time of uh, investment and railway building and uh, manufacturing and mining. Um, and, and there was the possibility in Alexander III's reign that maybe Russia would be spared some kind of revolutionary catastrophe uh, and that things were really sorting themselves out. Um, this, um, the, the, the economic, the, the social tensions that this kind of boom of industrialization brings about, um, peasants flooding into the cities to become workers, um, living in barracks and uh, dirty tenements and in extreme poverty, desperate to cling on to their jobs um, because the only alternative is perhaps not even going back to the land but living as a destitute within the city, uh, rife with crime and prostitution and other social ills. 
Um, the uh, These kinds of social tensions create a, a large and dissatisfied workforce, and, it's, and when the economy takes a dip, as it certainly was doing at the, bur- the turn of the, 19th, the 20th century, that's when you get um, the right number of dissatisfied, angry people. There had been um, repeated famines within the countryside, um, the biggest being the Volga famine of 1892, um, which contributed to the, the deaths of hundreds of thousands of Volga peasants uh, in the in Russia's south, um, and that the the inaction of the Tsarist regime at that time led largely to a, a widespread um, discrediting um, of Tsarism and its inability to do anything really to address key critical social problems. And that, as I discussed in the previous podcast with the aristocracy, that's where the aristocracy um, and the nobility step in and um, present themselves almost as a kind of an alternative way of running things. Um, the source of unrest, I think, that's most interesting um, from the turn of, from eight, about 1899 onwards to about 1902 comes from the schools and universities. Um, educational reforms under the time of Alexander II had led to a, a kind of a... a a, a, a large and active young intellectual student body, um, and it was this body who felt you know, frustrated, thwarted, and marginalised from the the very petty and small-minded um, and heavy-handed way of ruling universities. Um, students were expected almost to bow and scrape to the. Um, um, their teachers and lecturers and uh, senior educationalists uh, in the way that peasants were meant to in in the army. And obviously young, educated and idealistic people tend not to want to do such things. Um, so the universities were a real powder keg um, and it is these that break out into, um, dis- in, in, into unrest first in about 1899. By about 1903, this unrest has, has violently radicalised, uh, with thousands of students coming out onto the street, who many, some of whom are actually killed uh, by um, the, the Tsar's Cossacks and police putting the uh, unrests down. And all of it is largely unnecessary. It is the Tsar storing up trouble for himself and creating enemies where they need not really exist. Uh, so we got up until 1905, this restless period. One of the things um, that's debated uh, in 1904 is the extent to which the Tsar decides to go to war with Japan in 1904 on the basis of um, distracting the public from these problems. Um, Overall, there is a general sense when you read diaries and accounts, um, particularly if you read Nabokov's um, uh, uh, memoir speak memory um, you get a general sense that it was wi- widely understood and widely, wi- widely felt throughout Russian society that things had completely got out of control um, and the aristocracy themselves in the run up to 1905 blamed the Tsar um, there were actually uh, active political meetings amongst the aristocracy 
um, to first uh, for the first time to openly criticise the Tsar for allowing things to get into the mess they had got into. Um, the one of the popular ways of, of viewing the Tsar, viewing the Tsar, or viewing the Russian throne, really, was to suggest that it was an autocracy without an autocrat. So it was an autocratic system without actually a strong man at the top to really, really clamp down on things. So back to the point. I digress. Um, the the Russo-Japanese War of of 1904 to 1905. Um, some argue that um, it was a deliberate distraction on the part of the Tsar to divert the discontent of Russia towards um, a, a kind of a unified nationalistic um, goal. Um, what is perhaps more likely is that from the 1890s onwards, Russia had been treading on Japan's toes in the Far East anyway. In, in, very, uh, in brief, Russia... Um, um, goes to war with Japan in 1905, 1905 over the issues of Manchuria and um, uh, trade rights in Korea and tim- uh, logging and timber rights in Korea um, and, and is roundly defeated. Perhaps one of the reasons for um, the, the Tsar's meddling in the Far East um, was because from the 1870s or so in Europe onwards, the... Um, Russia had suffered a series of humiliating diplomatic defeats. Her other area that she uh, liked to meddle in, and we'll look at this in a later podcast, was, of course, the Balkans. Um, And up until 1914, uh, Austria, backed by Germany, has the upper hand in the Balkans. And so um, expansion uh, into that part, into south-east Europe, um, was very difficult but expansion perhaps into the into Southeast Asia is much easier if you assume, as the Tsar did, that the Japanese were an inferior and um, uh, militarily weakened people. The, the Russo-Japanese War was a disaster pretty much from the beginning. Um, the um, um, Japanese um, attack Port Arthur in the Far East we're in a, a a manner which is oddly prophetic of of Pearl Harbor, except without the aircraft. They launch a, a surprise preemptive attack and destroy uh, much of the Russian fleet there. Um, the Russian uh, Baltic fleet then sails from Kronstadt in the Gulf of Finland all the way uh, round the world from the North Sea, all the way uh, past Africa. Uh, into the Indian Ocean, and when it reaches the Pacific, is destroyed very quickly by the Japanese at the Battle of Tsushima. Um, similarly, on land, the uh, Russian armed forces, poorly led, poorly trained, poorly equipped, and with very low morale, are quickly beaten um, in Manchuria, um, and Russia is roundly humiliated. And this war, really, this defeat by Russia, sends shockwaves around the world. Firstly, a European power being defeated by an Asian power was, up until that point, simply unheard of. And secondly, it showed that, once again, um, Russia was um, 
large uh, and yet not necessarily particularly robust when it comes to fighting. Um, and it gave, and it showed also that the uh, institution of Tsarism was once again fundamentally weak and fundamentally weakened. The in 1905, uh, by 1905, um, the Tsar is suing for peace um, and needs his faithful for, uh, former uh, finance minister, Sergei Vitter, um, to conduct the Treaty of Portsmouth for him um, with the Americans acting as an honest broker. Um, in January 1905, however, the situation gets so much worse for the Tsar. The um, procession of workers that makes its way to the gates of the Winter Palace on January the 9th, 1905, um, uh, over a 100,000 strong, seem to resemble, as they march through the city of St. Petersburg, almost a religious procession. They have icons and banners, and really they were there to present a position to the Tsar to ask him to intervene in their lives and social conditions. Uh, these were amongst the most exploited workers in the world, people who lived in appalling, um, uh, 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 appalling accommodation, who were paid little more than slave wages, and who desperately needed the Tsar to, to do something for them. Remember that these people, the workers, the industrial working class in St. Petersburg, um, would either have been one generation away from being peasants, or they were simply a couple of years away from being peasants. They had literally come in off the land. And they had this naive trust that the Tsar was Batushka, the little father, um, there to look after the Russian people as his own children. Um, they were led by an interesting, if enigmatic, character called Father Gapon, uh, a Russian Orthodox priest who had, uh, who was in the Social Revolutionary Party, but was also a police spy, and he had informed the police um, about the demonstration, and they were waiting for it. Two days beforehand, there had been a strike of 120,000 workers in St. Petersburg. Um, and there was a, a sense amongst the Tsar's um, secret police, the Akwana, that something big was coming. Um, there was um, an influx of soldiers into uh, St. Petersburg there in the couple of days beforehand. Some 12,000 soldiers stood between the workers and the Winter Palace. And when they finally made it to the Winter Palace, um, the, the workers were confronted with um, an arsenal of, uh, of guns pointed at them. Whether or not there was meant, uh, whether or not um, anyone meant to fire on that fateful. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. 
That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Hi, this is Paige from Giggly Squad, and I want to talk to you about Splash Refresher and my water intake. Okay, so you guys obviously know that I'm a hydrated girly, but sometimes when you drink that much water it starts to just taste bland and you're just like, I need something to spice it up. That's why I love Splash Refresher. It has zero sugar, zero calories, and it's a splash of sweetness. And they come in five different flavors. They're so good. Wild berry, acai grape, pineapple mango, lemon, and mandarin orange. My favorite is the wild berry because I just, I just love a berry. So if you're like me and you're drinking water all day, then try Splash Refresher. It's going to absolutely change your water game and it's good for you. All day is unknown. But the 1905, January the 9th uh, massacre that came to be known as Bloody Sunday um, fundamentally changes everything for the Tsar. One soldier uh, in the thousand or so soldiers lined up in front of the the Winter Palace, perhaps panicked and let off a a shot into the crowd. This was followed by um, terror on the part of the crowd and mass panic on part of the soldiers who fired volley after volley into the crowds. Uh, The the total figure as to how many was killed is, is unknown. It ranges from a couple of hundred into the low thousands, um, perhaps about 1,200 might be um, um, a realistic estimate, but opinions differ. In a way, it kind of doesn't matter the exact figure, because the actual impact of the shootings, once again, reverberates around Russia and reverberates around the world. The world's opinion of Russia is that it is a kind of despotic, feudal, uh, anti-liberal state where um, innocent peaceful protesters are, are fired upon and the Russian uh, view of um, the Tsarist state fundamentally changes. The um, Here is where we see this great break between the people and the Tsar. For many of the workers of Russia now, in fact perhaps nearly for all the workers of Russia, the Tsar is no longer the Batushka. He's no longer the little father. Um, here is where we start to see the Tsar become an oppositional figure. That in order to be a good Russian, you have to actually be opposed to the Tsar. And the Tsar is no longer considered by the majority of the country to to be a um, a father of the nation. And it's it's this, I think, that makes revolution in 1917 all the more likely. Um, the whole of 1905 um, is, is a nightmare year for the Tsar. Uh, for much of the time, he is confined to his 
country estate at Peterhof uh, in the Gulf of Finland. He can't get out. The railway workers have gone on strike. Um, the um, army and the Tsar's uh, ministers can't necessarily ensure the Tsar's safety outside of his uh, well-defended little enclave. And um, he is paralysed when things such as the mutiny on the battleship Potemkin occur, um, where the the Potemkin, uh, one of the Tsar's um, uh, flagship uh, battleships um, in the Black Sea, mutinies and sails around the Black Sea, desperate to try to find a port that will have them eventually docking in Romania and many of the sailors escaping. Um, Sergei Vitter um, comes to the rescue again in October 1905, only after a year whereby the level of political assassinations by revolutionaries against government ministers takes a steep escalation and many of the Tsar's ministers, including um, Grand Duke Sergei, the Tsar's uncle, uh, are shot dead or uh, are blown up. Vitter um, comes to the rescue in 1905 and suggests to the Tsar that a constitutional arrangement, a constitutional settlement with the people needs now to happen. Um, that a Duma or a parliament must be established. He tells the Tsar that um, a Bill of Rights uh, ensuring freedom of speech, freedom of the press and other such things must be established. Um, and the Tsar uh, refuses to sign this. It's only when another one of the Tsar's more eccentric relatives um, threatens to uh, put a bullet through his own brain uh, does the Tsar finally acquiesce and, and accept that he, he must reluctantly sign this document. Why does the Tsar not want to do this? Well, this is an interesting question. Here the Tsar has had... Um, well over a year of unrest which could, which came very close to unseating him. Um, the the workers have declared a Soviet in Moscow, for example, which needs to be put down with extreme violence and brutality. Um, and the Tsar still does not want to listen to reason, to come to terms and to, to sign this uh, document, which will limit some of his power, but ensure that he doesn't go the way of Louis XVI, for example. Well, the Tsar believes himself to be answerable to God only. He believes that by signing the October Manifesto, he is committing some sort of heresy, some sort of treason, uh, and that he, will, it will, um, he is being trusted with being the autocrat of Russia, uh, and, and that to share this, it is not A, not his job to share this power out, and B, certainly not the role of the people to go asking for some of his power, um, the Tsar had this curious um, way of looking at the Russian um, Russian people and wondering really who, who on earth they thought they were to be asking such things of the Tsar. Um, it shows us really at that point how divorced from reality he is. Anyway, he signs the October Manifesto, but evidently has no intention of sticking to it whatsoever. Um, and reluctantly, a, a Duma in 1905 uh, is formed. Um, the Tsar in the October Manifesto gives the peasants um, 
a, um, a, a he, th- he throws them a bone, so to speak, in that he gives them um, a, a cancellation of the debts that they carried with them since the emancipation of the peasantry uh, in 1861. Um, and by doing that, he um, totally changes um, the... Uh, or attempts to totally change um, his relationship with them. Uh, ultimately, the the peasants are happy that uh, their debts have been cancelled, and this means that a lot of the unrest in the countryside dies down, and that the peasants themselves um, are less likely to want to be revolutionary. However, the landlords who had fled the countryside in 1905 uh, under threat of their lives from the from the peasants. When they return, they don't return to a stable or happy situation. Um, they return to deep-seated animosities. Um, they return to live in their live in their manor houses, um, cheek by jowl with the peasants, who are now a deeply embittered, angry bunch, uh, and it, it is not a happy time. Um, from, from the next few years. Really, up until 1917, the landowners and nobles continue to feel deeply insecure in the countryside. And now, um, without really enough troops to protect them, um, they tend to feel that uh, there is this simmering anger and hatred towards them in the countryside. Um, The uh, middle classes obviously get something quite good out of the... um, uh, out of the 1905 revolution and the October Manifesto, they get constitutional government, which they had wanted, and they get, a, now, uh, because of this, a, a rolling government. They're able to actually uh, attend the Duma um, and hopefully get some kind of meaningful political change, uh, which is ultimately what they had wanted. The fact that the Tsar sets about subverting this almost from the get-go um, is... is Neither here nor there. Um, as far as the um, uh, the middle classes are concerned and the nobility, this has been quite a result. It's really the working classes that get nothing out of the 1905 revolution, um, except uh, in, in many cases killed, um, violently uh, suppressed through the actions of, um, well, through the, the crushing of things like the Moscow uh, Soviet and other Soviets that have established themselves up and down the country. Um, and many of the, um, uh, many of the, the working-class revolutionaries or uh, middle-class revolutionaries who uh, have allied themselves with the working classes, uh, such as Leon Trotsky, for example, um, they're the ones who are uh, shipped off to exile in Siberia. And it is the experience of seeing uh, middle-class deputies... Uh, on the whole, st- um, step into the Duma um, from the vantage point of being shipped off down the River Neva on prison barges uh, as workers that embitters many of the working class revolutionaries against the bourgeoisie forever. And the next time the revolution happens in 1917, there is far less cooperation and, uh, and uh, amicability from 
the, uh, the working classes. In essence, the working class view of the middle classes during 1905 is that uh, the middle classes were perhaps meant to offer the leadership, and they don't do. They're the ones who fold and who uh, make a deal with the Tsar, which ultimately um, leads to many of the workers suffering or being killed. Um, after 1905, the, the violence doesn't end. Uh, there's this assumption that we have that um, the Tsar put a lid on things and um, really that uh, violence dies down at that point. It doesn't. It goes on to at least 1908. Perhaps not on the same scale. Um, but the, um, the numbers of assassinations, the numbers of um, bombings and shootings, that kind of thing continues... Um, just at this point, the Tsar is in a slightly better position to uh, reclaim some of his authority and to crack down on these things. Um, and the, uh, at this point, the revolutionaries are, are, are fighting a losing battle. The thing that really um, gives the Tsar a temporary reprieve is another little economic boom from about 1907-1908 through to about 1912. Um, and once again, there are hopes at this point that Russia has turned a corner um, and that the, um, there is the, the possibility um, that prosperity will come to Russia um, and that on some level, uh, Russia might be able to resolve some of, the, uh, some of these um, issues of unrest. The Tsar is completely unwilling on any level to um, compromise and to uh, really introduce uh, meaningful uh, reform. Um, the, there are three Dumas after 19, uh, 1905, all of which are fundamentally undermined uh, by the Tsar um, and his later Prime Minister, Peter Stolypin. Um, I'll talk a little bit more about that period, um, the period of the Dumas, uh, and the run up to World War One uh, in another podcast because I know we're we're kind of running over a little bit here, um, but suffice to say that um, when the boom uh, that runs up to about 1912 starts to tail off, once again we start to get these revolutionary rumblings within Russia, um, and it's perhaps arguable that these that the only thing that was ever staving them off were these these little short-lived moments of, of, uh, of quasi-prosperity. Um, by this time, uh, the Tsar um, becomes quite dependent on more reactionary voices within the Russian cabinet and within the Duma. And it's these voices, as we shall see, that really drag the Tsar into the heart of World War I, uh, which really leads to his downfall and doom. Anyway, that's a story for another time. But if you want more on this particular subject, you uh, can look at the Russian history ebooks that you can find on www.explaininghistory.com, uh, available for Kindle and a wide variety of other ebook readers. And you can always sign up to our newsletter at explaininghistory.com for uh, weekly updates. Um, and uh, you, or you can email me directly, all uh, questions guaranteed a response. 
Anyway, thanks for listening, and uh, my next podcast is going to be on the subject of World War One. Thank you. Hello, this is Danny Pellegrino, host of the Everything Iconic podcast, and I'm here to tell you all about Splash Refresher, because hydration is mandatory, but boring is not. Now, I love my water, but if I don't spice it up, I'm not going to finish what I took out of the fridge. That's why I love my Splash Refresher, which is flavorful, delicious, bright, hydrating, and zero calories. The wild berry flavor is my fave. No, wait. Is the pineapple mango flavor my fave? You know what? All five craveable Splash Refresher flavors are my fave because they're so delicious. So get hydrated and enjoy it with Splash Refresher. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.